Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. Today's episode is with Susanna Newfield. She's a licensed psychotherapist, certified eating disorder specialist, certified yoga therapist, and mom of two who has been dedicated to supporting individuals and families with perinatal maternal mental health concerns and eating disorders since 2003. I think this is a really interesting episode. It There aren't too many people out there who are at this intersection of body image and pregnancy and and what you go through in pregnancy and postnatal. So this is a really interesting conversation, especially since we're both pregnant right now. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's even relevant for those that, you know, are either men and or aren't parents at all, because I think there's a lot of learnings behind what the mentality is around both eating disorders and then the shift from maiden to mother and how we can better support not just ourselves if we are mothers, but support the mothers around us and the mothers to be around us. Absolutely. And I love even taking this into account because we can go through so much of our life feeling in a good place in our body. And then, as you say later in this episode, wake up one day with a completely different body. Mm-hmm. And taking a moment to think about how does that affect us as people? How does it affect our mental health, especially if there's any type of history with disordered eating or having an unhealthy relationship to food or body? and that this can be a very triggering time for people. So I love that we're bringing this to light, having this conversation. I don't think that this is stuff that should be hidden or anything to be ashamed of. So I love the same way that mental health in general is becoming a more popular conversation, that this piece of mental health is also coming into the conversation. So looking forward to sharing this conversation that we had with Susanna Newfield with all of our Sakara Light listeners today. Enjoy. Also, please note we are recording from our homes via Zoom, so please forgive us for any sound issues. Well, we're so excited to have you on the Sakara Life podcast today, Susanna. Um, usually we like to start out by asking our guests about their mission, so we'd love to hear what is your mission here on Earth? Oh my gosh. Well, I think I have two answers. There's sort of my, you know, what do I think, what do I think the purpose of being here on earth is for me? I think I was thinking about this a lot. I think it's to experience what it means to be alive, to feel things, emotions, and senses fully, and then to have connection with other living beings my kids, my friends, my community, my husband, people that I meet, strangers. But in terms of kind of my mission, my, you know, work is not even the right word, but sort of my heart mission. No, I'm a a therapist and I I work with people with eating disorders and um, also perinatal mental health, maternal mental health. And I think the thing, I love my work so so passionately and so deeply. It's not, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like everything about who I am. And I think the thing that underlies that for me is wanting to bring more connection and more compassion 
into people's lives, to have them view themselves with compassion, and then to be able to connect with loved ones and help loved ones have tools and feel like they can access their own compassion to be there for for people who need them. I really believe that that connection is the the healing factor. And I'm a family therapist, so... (laughs) Yeah. You articulated the the mission part so well. It really is. It really is. We see it. That question as asking, like, what do you believe is your gift that you're giving here on earth? Like, what are you giving to others? And it sounds like it's so clear for yeah. you. It's funny, you know. I I think you know you always have to like write website copy or 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 come up with ways to describe yourself, and I. The way I, I think I described somewhere that I kind of, in my work, I try to hold a, com- a balance of compassion and honesty and my clients will often laugh and they're like, that's exactly how I would um, describe you. That those are the things that I've taken away as sort of that honest truth and that ability to have compassion for myself. So, mm. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, kind of just your overall thesis and approach when it comes to perinatal health and then maybe just also touch a little bit, like, is there, where does perinatal health and mental health and then eating disorders, is there anywhere where those intersect or a reason why you chose to do each of those? I think in a lot of people's minds, those are two very different things, but I can absolutely imagine (laughs) where they intersect as somebody who had eating disorders. So yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I started as an eating disorder therapist and had been doing that for several years. And, you know, I think my introduction to it would have been that I just had several clients who were pregnant or postpartum that I was seeing. And there's such a transformation in terms of relationship with body and food. And sometimes even people who'd had an eating disorder when they were younger and then felt like they'd recovered for several years, it comes back such a vulnerable time, that pregnancy postpartum time. And I'd found that work really enriching. And then when I was pregnant with my first child about 10 years ago, I had a really hard pregnancy. I had hyperemesis. I don't know. Wow. So nausea and vomiting all the time. It was really devastating. And I very quickly developed depression and anxiety during that time. And had to go on my own journey to be able to cope with that and get through the pregnancy and into motherhood. And during that time, one of the things that really, really helped me was going to prenatal yoga classes. I was so sick that I couldn't even do most of it, but going was so powerful to me. And I loved my teacher and I had already been sort of a a casual um, hobbyist yoga teacher before that. Um, but I decided, you know, just for myself to do the, the prenatal yoga teacher training, just to learn more from that teacher and figure out how to heal myself and move myself through the process. And when I was doing that training, I thought this is all stuff I really want to bring into my work with my clients. And that started me on a journey to incorporating both of the things into my practice and sort of adding it as, a, as another group of people that I wanted to serve. There's a huge amount of overlap. People who have a history of an eating disorder are much more vulnerable actually to having maternal mental health struggles. I'm not sure on the exact statistics, but it's pretty staggering how much having a history of an eating disorder is a risk factor. So, you know, that that just comes up a lot. And I will say that 201, every client that I see for pregnancy and postpartum concerns, one of the big concerns that they have, it has to do with body image and how they feel in their body during pregnancy and especially afterwards. Yeah, you spend your whole life, you know, if you're lucky, you have spent your life getting to know and love your body. And then one day you wake up and you're pregnant and it's a whole new body. Yeah. In my case, day one, like literally the day I found out I was pregnant, I was like, what body is this? I don't know her. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, that was definitely an anxiety for me. And I, I'd love for you to touch on how you categorize an eating disorder. I never, I never went and saw anyone about mine, but I definitely had disordered eating. 
where I had a terrible relationship to my body. Uh, I would say I used food more as punishment than nourishment. I had a lot of anxiety around food. You know, I didn't know what the right things to eat were. I was never thinking about eating for how I felt. I was only thinking about eating for how I looked. Um, I was hopping from diet to diet to diet. And so in my mind, like that is, especially compared to where I am now, that is very much disordered eating. So when you talk about this, that journey and how it relates and intersects with motherhood and pregnancy, can you, can you give us your two cents on, on how you define eating disorders? Well, I think you just gave a really beautiful definition of it and, um, and how, just think about how common that is, right? I think that we have this medical system that has created one definition, which is really for insurance companies of what an eating disorder is and looks like that, that actually has nothing to do with what I think eating disorders actually look like because it's the, the definitions, the medical definitions are very weight based on weight and size and sort of number of behaviors when they're actually a mental illness and they can affect people of any size, any shape, any age, any gender, any background. And they're rooted in a relationship with food that is about, you know, what you think you should do, what you think you should look like that the, that has deprivation at the core of it, I think, actually, even when people have mm-hmm. been eating concerns, deprivation is usually at the core of it. Um, and then I think that that relationship with food also becomes a way to deal with anxiety, trauma, discomfort in the world. And it's a, it's a reaction that I think makes sense in a world that can be really chaotic and in a world that certainly promotes in, in a lot of ways. A lot of these behaviors, I just this morning saw I don't know if you saw this, that Amazon just came out with a product that they're at the top of their thing, that it's something you wear around your wrist and it tells you what your body looks like and what you would look like with each percentage of body fat you gain. No. I mean, it's so devastating no. that that just came out. Um, what ha- is that? I, it's like I 10 know. steps forward and 10,000 behind. I know. It's devastating. So in some ways, I think eating disorders are the only logical reaction to the world that we live in. And there's a lot of reclamation that we have to do to, to take our intuitive relationship with our bodies and with mm. eating back. It's really interesting that you mentioned it's a mental health condition and that, you know, I think so much of it is the focus is on the physical that we forget about. No, this really is a manifestation coming from anxiety or insecurities or, you know, whatever those drivers and motives are for creating habits or relationships with food. And I I think with eating disorders, it's similar to anxiety or depression, where I think in the past, there was a lot of shame around being labeled as depressed or something like that. And I think putting a label is really difficult too, where it can be something that is maybe just a passing phase, a moment in your life. Maybe it's something you come into and come out of. And maybe it's something that is always there that you're working on, but that doesn't mean that you're, you need to be labeled as this thing or this type of person or put in this category box for this insurance company. Right. Like defined by it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really hard for a lot of people when this is so common. So many people feel anxiety. So many people think about their food and what they're putting into their body or how they look in the mirror. Like this is normal human behavior. Especially in this culture. And even the language behind what you're saying, Wit, is, you know, like, I am bulimic or I am anorexic. It's like, no, that's not who I am. That's just, you know, one of the tools I'm using because my, my toolkit isn't in a good place or my mental health isn't in a good place. It's not who I am. 
and because that's what we're taught, right? One of the things I often try to talk with people about, because people will, especially if they think that they, you know, want to think of themselves as a feminist and they want to be fighting and they're like, why do I have these thoughts in my mind that actually don't fit with my values? And something that we talk about a lot is these thoughts and this disorder doesn't actually belong to you. It's not yours. It's something that is in the air. It's like if you Mm. go out in the rain, you're going to get wet. (laughs) That's not your fault. That's what happens. Even if you have an umbrella, parts of you are going to get wet. And they don't want us. How can we give them back? And how can we, you know, figure out what's true to us? I love that so much. It's so powerful. Especially in a day and age of social media, I can only imagine how, you know, young people are feeling growing up and being put on that type of stage platform to be judged by their peers and by others at such a young age. It's devastating. I mean, I spend a lot of my practices is adolescence. And Mm. I mean, we all had the same thing when we were younger. We had it in magazines. They have it on TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat and, you know, and are more exposed to that now that they're at home really staring at those screens all day long during this pandemic. But it, it is so intense for them and the need to have likes. Yeah, it's so pervasive. And the difference between, I think, now and when Whitney and I were growing up was like, yeah, we saw it in the magazines, but it wasn't our peers you know, using a filter and, you know, Facetune and all these things to like fix themselves. Like that's very different to see a peer of mine or someone I know kind of leading this air quote, you know, perfect life or with the perfect body. That's, I imagine that to be more damaging than, and and it's not to undermine, it was still very damaging. Nine years old is when I decided I need to go on a diet. And, you know, now as a mother of a young girl, I I just, I can't imagine her feeling like she needs to change the way she looks to be valued in society. But so not to devalue kind of the magazine and cultural element, but I think it is a whole new world now that you're seeing your peers kind of, I don't know, become the models or whatever it is, who you compare yourself to. Absolutely. And I would actually use that to tie to the maternal mental health piece, because I think we talk about, you know, there's the body aspect of it, but also there's for moms, this aspect of seeing what other moms are doing and this performative parenthood that happens on social media and comparing what your body looks like to what other people's body looks like. I know so many moms who are literally, you know, Googling or Instagramming what body, mom's body looked like in each week postpartum and comparing what their body looks like to that, you know, but also am I taking these photos of my baby every month posed on a cute blanket with a little thing? And, you know, have I gotten these family photos that look a certain way? And am I showing these adorable foods that I've made for my children? And am I, you know, all of those pieces on the first day of school, I took a picture of my kids, you know, to put on sort of that obligatory first day of school picture. And I thought it was funny with them holding their computers and, and all the comments that I got from people were like, oh my gosh, I'm, your setup is so amazing of, I had let them a little, we have blackboard in our house and they're standing in front of it. And I felt so terrible, you know, like, oh, now everybody is comparing, you know, that piece of it. And I I certainly didn't put it there for that reason, but I know I would compare myself if I saw someone else with this really awful setup there. And I think Pinterest and all of those things have made that just another area in which we don't feel good enough. And what you're saying makes me really think about how I'm contributing and that being on the other side of it, of being the person, you know, especially 10 years ago that would have felt less than and dieting and because of the images I see, then now that I'm in a much, much healthier place with my food and my body, then it's like almost putting back on that hat of who I was before to make sure that I'm not ever part of the problem again. Like there's a lot of onus on each of us as contributors, not just consumers. Yeah, absolutely. I think I try, one of the things I love seeing when, when I have friends do this is to kind of put 
you know, okay, I'm going to put this beautiful picture of my family and now I'm going to show you real life and show everybody crying or fighting and to really be able to talk about that stuff too. If we're going to put stuff out there to show both sides of, of what's and real and messy. Mm. So it sounds like I, I love this intersection between how I relate to my body and then where that intersects with creating a new body and a new human. What about the, the postpartum period? Like what called you to help women through that? Yeah. Um, well, that, that work that I, that I was doing in the prenatal yoga was part of it, but certainly my own experience, I found pregnancy and postpartum to be really, really challenging, especially after my second, you know, after the first, I sort of had that blissful piece of, okay, whenever, you know, in the morning I do a feeding and then put her down for her nap. And then I would sleep. And with the second, it was like, oh, I can't go back to sleep because you need me now. And the exhaustion was so much more profound. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's an, it's that mixture of, of my own experience and then seeing the people around me and feeling a mission to help help moms feel like what they're going through makes sense and that they're, they deserve support, that their feelings are valid and that there's a lot we can do to help them survive this time. Yeah. What are some of the things that women experience through pregnancy and, and postpartum that you see? Mm-hmm. How does this manifest? Yeah, I think well, when I think about it, I think, right, of what are the general things people experience and then what happens when mental health issues start to come into play. So I think about that time as being a time of great transformation. That's the buzzword that I keep in my mind. And I think about all the things that are changing during that time that cause transformation and chaos and, you know, just opening for a lot of new to be created. But our sort of like a second adolescence, right? So there's hormonal changes. It's very much, again, like a second adolescence. Body is changing. Identity is changing. How you see yourself in the world and how other people see you, what your role is in your relationship. If you're in an intimate relationship with friends and certainly career and work changes are pretty profound and our culture does a terrible job of supporting moms. And I think that this pandemic has set that back, you know, years and years and years and years in terms of roles like that. And then there's a huge amount of emotional change that goes on during that time, right? I often think of this time, I think I must've been, you know, 15 weeks pregnant or so with my first, and I went out for lunch with a colleague of mine, a physician who had some older children. And I said, I'm, once I have that 18 week ultrasound and I know everything looks good, I'm going to stop worrying. And she was like, oh, honey, <laughs> you're going to be worried until the day you die. <laughs> you know? yeah. And she was right. It just keeps going. You know, there's the, the, the love and the care for the kids. It brings a whole new world of emotion in there. And so with all of that going on and you add in, you know, the spices of sleep deprivation, well, really that is the big one and the hormones. <laughs> and it's a recipe for feeling all over the place and having a lot of change happen. And so, you know, there's, there's so many different things that can happen that can be difficult in that time. There's baby blues, which is actually really common. I think it's up to 80% of people who have baby blues, and that's just in the first couple of weeks. And it can be feelings of, you know, just crying, overwhelm, exhaustion, fear, intrusive thoughts, but they're mild enough that you can kind of notice them and kind of say, okay, it makes sense that these are here and then they pass. But when the duration is longer and when the severity is longer, then we're getting into the realm of a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. And that happens in about 20% of women. It's the most common complication of pregnancy and childbirth. Wow. Yeah. And so those, you know, I think we talk a lot about sort of 
people often use the term postpartum, like, oh, I have postpartum, which is funny because anybody who's ever had a baby is postpartum. Right. (laughs) After pregnancy. Yeah. (laughs) It's a misnomer. Um, But even if we think of postpartum depression, actually most cases start during pregnancy. So that's why the shift is to say perinatal. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's almost kind of strangely a relief in my mind Mm -hmm. because at least if you have early signs, which I guess they're not that early, you're still in it. But, you know, if you have the signs during pregnancy, what are some of the things you can do to set yourself up for success during the postpartum when it's like truly (laughs) overwhelming? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I tell people is you want to get your list of support people in place while you're pregnant. So don't wait until, you know, your baby is three months old and you're having episodes of panic or rage or obsession or fighting constantly with your partner to figure out where your local therapist is and what resources are available. Get that in place while you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. You know, we spend all this time preparing for birth, right? <laughs> and that's, you know, at, at longest, like two days hopefully less. But, you know, then forever after, there's a lot of support we might need. We might need lactation help. We might need therapists. We might need a good yoga teacher to have around. We might need a psychiatrist or a doctor or an acupuncturist or all these people that can be supportive. And I really like people to get a good list in place. I think that's sort of the the professional piece. And, and I should definitely acknowledge is not also accessible to everyone. It's a privilege to have those things. Unfortunately, in our society, it should be a right. But also, if those things are not available, and even if they are, for sure, that people want to get in place their the supports in their community. So mm-hmm. finding out who are the people in your life that you can be real with, where you don't have to try to act like everything's okay. You can tell them what's hard. They can laugh with you. They can cry with you. They can be there and show up. Working on your relationship with your partner or if if you don't have a partner with other family members or close people who can be there to support. And then doing things like getting just practical things set up. So figuring out, you know, how to have a, a meal train. So you're community sets something like that up for you or you know if there's any way to do it's hard in this pandemic but sharing care with other moms or you know I'm a big fan of people allowing themselves to use daycare I think daycare is wonderful I used daycare for my kids and I know there can be a lot of shame around that in in the world that we live in right now but just knowing what resources are available so that you have time to be a human being. I also found that it's one thing to know who you can count on and then it's another thing to count on them. So yeah. really practicing. Like I remember before I had kids, I would tell some of my mom friends, like, if you want me to come over and babysit, I'll, you can sleep, you can go see a movie, mm-hmm. I can come over and cook for you. And none of them ever took me up on it. And I think we're so used to in society, like, doing things ourselves. And when people offer to help, you just say thank you and you don't really like take them up on it. So I think it's also practicing taking people up on what they offer because it you're giving the person a gift. When somebody gets to show up for you and be there for you, I really think that you're giving them a gift ultimately. And I think as women, especially during this period, we have to be so... We have to prep ourselves to learn how to receive. It's like we're giving so much all of a sudden to this little being that really learning how to receive in a meaningful way is is so important. I like what you just said too, because I read somewhere that the best way to develop, like a to take your relationship to the next level with somebody you just met is not to do a favor for that person, but to ask them for a favor for you. And so that's like what you're saying where, you know, ask people for help and it will be nice for them to help too, though they can actually enjoy it and they can make that relationship feel a bit more intimate between you when you've had that. 
Yeah. I love that. I think about so many of my close friendships are people who let me come and hold their babies and be there for them in that time. Yeah. I, I often suggest too, for friends, one of the things that I recommend is saying to your friend, instead of saying, hey, if you ever need me, I'm here, or can I come over and do X, Y, Z? But instead saying like, I'm coming on yes. Wednesday, tell me if that's not okay with you. Yeah. No, or I'm, I'm coming for two bed. hours and yeah. I'm going to fold your laundry <laughs> and do the dishes. Yeah. Yeah. I know people would ask me that and I actually probably would have taken them up on it, but it was literally in my head like, You're like I don't know oh, what I need. That's the best day. How is that all going <laughs> to yeah. work? Yeah. Totally. It's, it's so true. And now for a quick break. Today, we are so excited to tell you about one of our newest products, the Foundation Prenatal. As a pregnant mama, I couldn't find a product on the market that was both comprehensive and clean. So we had to make it ourselves. The foundation prenatal includes everything you know a prenatal should have, plus so much more. It contains a superfood-based multivitamin and algae omega, choline for baby brain development, macro minerals, our complete probiotic formula, and of course, If you are a Saccharolite, you know you love our greens. So we included a super green supplement in there as well. And just like we have such high quality standards when it comes to our Saccharolife Life nutrition program and the food we're putting into our bodies, we come to these supplements with the same level of standards of quality and cleanliness. We really couldn't find anything out there on the market that met those standards. And so we had to create these. Any time of your life, it's important to be putting clean ingredients into your body, but especially during this time when you are building a life inside of you or feeding a life straight from your body. So these are the highest quality supplements out there on the market. Try them. You're going to love them. I used to have bottles and bottles of different supplements all lining my counter and have to count them out and put them all together. And this just makes it so easy. They all come together in one convenient packet that you can take with your morning meal or before you go to bed. It's all food-based, so it's really easy on the stomach, especially during those times in pregnancy when anything can be a little bit harsh on the stomach. Whether you're pregnant or postpartum and breastfeeding, needing to replenish some of those nutrient stores, this is a great option to ensure you're getting everything your body needs. And for a limited time, we're gifting you $25 off your first purchase of the Foundation Prenatal. Simply go to sakara.com forward slash prenatal, P-R-E-N-A-T-A-L, and at checkout, use the code podcast 25. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com forward slash P-R-E-N-A-T-A-L and enter podcast 25 at checkout for your $25 off your first time purchase. Okay, now back to our chat. So I switched partway through my pregnancy due to this pandemic. I switched from OB care in New York City to midwife care out here in Arizona. And with this midwife care, they, like as part of the the package that you pay for, they set you up with their chiropractor. You get like a free session with their chiropractor. You get a free session with an acupuncturist and with a prenatal massage therapist. You know, they start giving you these tools, these, these people, you're, you know, they help you to form this community of healers and, and people to go to around you that I thought was just so amazing and so impactful. And they want to help set you up for to be the most successful in having a natural birth, mm-hmm. but then also for recovery. And they put me in touch with doulas and the doulas offer, you know, birth doula support, but also postpartum doula support. And with that, you know, they list a list of things that they can do, ranging from helping with cooking and doing dishes to diaper changing to, 
you know, light housework, whatever it is. And I just thought that was such a great resource. And like you were saying, obviously that's, you know, such a privilege to have access to that and be able to to do that. But when I was in New York, I I didn't necessarily have all of those people in place specifically for prenatal and thinking about postpartum too like that, where I think a lot of people in New York opt for night nurses. But to me, that's something totally different than having like a postpartum doula that is there really to help while you're recovering and there to and support you with your baby. Yeah. Yeah. Supporting yeah. you, not the baby. Yeah. We had a postpartum doula after our second, um, when things got really hard and it is, it's such a privilege. I, it sort of put me on this thought of how could we make this accessible to everyone because everyone should have that. I don't know how I would have survived that time period without her. We only had her, we could have her, I think we had her for three weeks every third night was what we could afford. And it was those, I'd just wait for those nights, you know, (laughs) and be so grateful for her to be there. And she was a total angel. But the the funny thing is, is my OB care in New York City, just that was probably three times more expensive than my midwife care with all of this other stuff included in Arizona. Wow. Yeah. Do you think because of Arizona prices versus New York prices or, yeah. I think it's also like though there is this weird thing. Like I, I, I won't give birth in New York city. Like there's this is a weird thing where New York city is just behind. Like, I don't know how else to explain it. It's like, it's, you know, wrapped up in bureaucracy and like old school thinking and very transactional. Well, the institutions are just so old here. Like they've been around for so long that they they haven't really caught up to modern times. Like even, you know, as you're creating your birth plan and it's like if you end up with a C-section and delayed cord clamping and and that was all like they're they're not really willing to do that where, you know, I have sister, my sister-in-law gave birth in San Francisco and she's like, you don't even have to write that down in your birth plan, like delayed cord clamping you know, and going right into the mother's arms is just like table stakes. Like that's just what you do. But here in New York City, it's, you have to fight for that. I guess that's just like New York. You got to fight for what you want here. (laughs) (laughs) I think you do still have to advocate for yourself here in the Bay Area as well. Although, you know, I think, and that goes for no matter who you're working with, you know, I think there's incredible OBs that are really forward thinking and will do those things. And then I think that there's midwives who, you know, do it in in an old school way. And it's really, and it's unfortunate because, you know, the way things are in the modern world, you can't say, here's who I want to have be there. Yeah. Unless you have the privilege of hiring someone, you know, to come to your home. But if you're going to be in a hospital, which, which I did, and I chose to, you know, you're, you, you get who you get, which is why I'm a big, big fan of bringing a doula with you to the hospital. And especially a fan of doulas who really will support you no matter what happens and um, help you feel good about things. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying, you know, as we're talking about all the, all of the things that can come up around mental health, that the issue of what happens during labor and birth, there can be trauma, there can be a sense of loss of power and all of that can really affect how somebody feels, whether they feel empowered or disempowered in the postpartum period. And I think that's actually independent of what kind of labor the person has. I think it's much more about their relationship to what's happening and to how the people around them are are treating them. Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking a lot here at Sakara about this idea of holding space. And I, I think the original OGs of holding space are midwives and doulas. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea where you are somebody's shepherd as they cross the veil. And truly, like I work with a midwife as well for, for my first birth and now this birth as well. And, you know, they're the first to say like the yes they're clinicians midwives are clinicians they can do everything an OB can do clinically except a c-section but mostly they just sit with you and and hold a container for you to do 
probably the craziest thing you've ever done in your whole life. Like I can't imagine anything crazier and just how, how powerful that is and how much you need that. And then I think about other places in our lives where, where, where else do we need that container of holding space and where is that need not being met? Yeah. I also want to give a shout out to nurses. Mm. Not everyone can have a doula and there are just amazing nurses who are as doulas all day long. I've heard so many stories about nurses, like from other mothers, more than OBs, like, and midwives and anyone. Like I hear so many stories, like I don't know what I would have done without that nurse. Yeah. So true. I last year, maybe two years ago now, I was with a friend while she was in labor and her nurse was I just was in awe of her the entire time. She was, you know, helped her do really incredible things that baby needed to shift positions. And that nurse coached her through the entire thing, like this, you know, with this total ancient wise woman energy. It was really amazing. It's so true. I have a friend, one of my best friends. I'm the godmother to her three kids. And in her first labor, her first, like, got stuck, I guess. And <laughs> she has this really funny story about where the woman, this nurse that had been her nurse during her entire labor, hopped on to her, like, straddled her belly, mm-hmm. like, facing toward her toes, and lifted her arms into, like, a f- and made a fist and, like, popped down on her belly and, like, popped the child out. And she's like, that woman punched my belly, but she also, <laughs> like, saved my life. <laughs> And just like, so I don't know, there's a level of like confidence to so many nurses and like, they just see so much and they're definitely shepherds and holding space as well. But I love that image of just like this nurse recognizing what needed to happen and hopping in and just doing it. Getting up there. Yeah. Well, I'm about to give birth any day now. And your book is called Awake at 3 a.m., And I would just, I'd love some advice for going into this. You know, like Danielle said, this level of naivete is nice where I don't, you know, I can hear from my friends, but I really don't know what I'm in for. So any advice for like a new mom going into this? Yes. First of all, to let go of any of the platitudes that people tell you. I think people are going to say sleep when the baby sleeps, and that's really hard to do. I just, (laughs) I always think that advice, like, why do we say that? Because as soon as the baby sleeps, you have to go eat and pee and, you know, do anything that you didn't have time to do before. Maybe you just want to stare at the baby. That's a big expectation to put on yourself. But that said, I think with sleep, postpartum, there's these different levels. There's, you know, do you have time to sleep? Are you getting support with the baby care so that you can get some periods of uninterrupted sleep? And then also when you do have the opportunity to sleep, are you able to fall asleep? And those are two really different pieces. So the first is one I work with people on all the time and kind of connecting with the other adults in their house and how they can help. And then you know, figuring out different things that can happen just to help the baby sleep a little bit more. But the second is the piece where we have to do a lot of support for the emotions that might come up and what is it that's happening that's getting in the way of being able to settle the nervous system and lie down. Is it, you know, internal pressure of all these things that you have to do? Is it actual pressure of all these things that you have to do? Is it intrusive thoughts or worries that are going on. And each of those has different things we can do to support someone, you know, with worries and thoughts that are popping in. I really like to talk about normalizing that. And I think the problem can come when we're really disturbed by thoughts that we have. So sometimes there will be lots of thoughts about, you know, what if something bad happens to my baby? What if I do something bad to my baby? What if I'm not doing this right? What if this and that and the other thing? And then when those thoughts come in, there can be an idea that something is wrong with me because those thoughts are there. What mother would have these thoughts? You know, what mother would kind of 
here, I, I often thought about somehow putting my baby into the freezer. I'm like, I wish I could just freeze her and pause her for a minute so mm-hmm. that I could lie down for 12 hours. Then I could <laughs> thaw her, you know, and there's these moments where I'd be like, oh my gosh, what kind of mother would think that, you know, I love my child. What kind of mother would think about that? Or a lot of moms have images of, of throwing their baby out the window, you know, that those kinds of dark thoughts that come in, we judge and we judge ourselves for them. And to be able in those moments to say, these thoughts are normal. These feelings are normal. They make sense. Of course, they're there when I'm so exhausted and I don't have to layer on top of them judgment, you know, and I can say to myself, you know, like, Hey, this is a really hard time. There's a lot that you're doing that is really wonderful and it's always good enough. And it's okay to rest right now and kind of Mm. put down carrying the weight of being perfect and of protecting your child from any bad thing that could ever happen. You know, you are okay. I love what you said. Like, it's okay to rest right now. That was the biggest thing I actually wasn't ready for was how my understanding of busy was going to change. So, you know, Whitney and I run a company, a large company, like with 200 people now. It's like, it's, it, busy is not the right word. And I'm not trying to make busy sound cool. In fact, like Whitney and I have had to do a lot of work to figure out how to prioritize well and not be overwhelmed. I don't think being so busy is a good thing. So I'm not trying to idolize that at all. What's that? I just want to interrupt you and say, I have a total issue with the fact that we pathologize people for saying they're busy. Yes. I just, I don't understand that in our culture. We overwork everyone. We don't provide free child care. We are everyone to be perfect. And then when they say that they're overwhelmed and busy, we blame them and say like, you're holding on to being a martyr. You're trying to show and seem cool for being busy. And gosh, give people a break. Yeah. There's no easy way out. I completely agree with you. And I think after giving birth, I promised myself I was going to take my maternity leave and like really practice not being a founder and not being a, a CEO and just try for a little while to take that hat off and just put it next to me. It's not going anywhere, but, you know, really lean into this new role. Because, you know, when do you ever have weeks or months off with your child? So I was really surprised at how hard that was. I was really surprised at, even though I was so busy physically, mentally, the stimulation is very different. It's a whole nother level where you, you're breastfeeding and so your hands are busy and you're with your child and, you know, you're trying to be present, but your mind is so much less occupied in what now I believe is such an important way. You know, I know a lot of birth workers believe that birth is actually not just a one-time event, but actually unfolds over the following weeks and months after you give birth. And I think allowing our brains to stop doing so much and in terms of how we typically think of busy and lean into what the new busy looks like and, and rest. And I mean, I remember I watched, I like watched every episode of sex in the city in my <laughs> postpartum time. And like, normally I would never allow myself to just do that and relax and breastfeed and watch, you know, a show I love, but it was so important for my mental and physical health. Yeah. We have to give ourselves that permission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just rest. I would love for you to speak to, I'm not exactly sure how to frame this question, but it's something that's been on my mind recently. You get comments when you're pregnant about your physical body. You get comments postpartum. And when you're pregnant, it's like, you look great. You're only belly, which is absolutely not true. And I'm fine with that. But I, I almost like, I don't need you to act like that's a good thing. You know, I don't, it doesn't feel good when somebody says that because I don't think that that's what anyone should strive for or I don't think that's what a beautiful pregnancy has to look like. On the other hand, I also recognize people's need to recognize my physicality and, and 
I'm okay making space for that. It, it, it doesn't bother me. I know the intention is, is good. And then it happens postpartum too. We're like, oh my God, you just had a baby. You don't even look like it. And it's like, well, what's wrong with looking like it? And, and I recognize they're, they're trying to, you know, compliment whoever they're speaking to, but what are, what are some of the, the tools we can offer people around us or anyone listening that's around pregnant or postpartum women as a way to maybe recognize the feat of what they are doing and the physicality of what they're doing and the beauty of what they're doing and give them a compliment without making them feel like, you know, it's back to those cultural norms of what perfection is. I love that question. And I love that reflection. So, uh, I mean, my prenatal yoga teacher who I studied with, and I will credit this to her. Her name is Jane Austen. She's in San Francisco. Everybody should do her online yoga stuff. It's under, I think her, her online stuff is called Mometry. But she always taught us that when you want to say to someone, oh my gosh, you know, you look so big or you look so amazing that you should always say, oh, wow, your baby has really grown. (laughs) And I took that and I have used that. And it's really helpful. Even when someone's pregnant, you should go, oh, your baby is growing. Because if you say something like you, oh my gosh, you're so huge. Or even, oh, you're so small. It can really make someone worry that you're so small. You know, but I think that saying, I always like, when people say stuff like you're glowing, although that can feel really invalidating if you feel miserable and people are telling yeah. you. That you <laughs> I'm like, are you lying? I get that sometimes. And I'm like, I don't believe you. <laughs> like I haven't slept in a week. And yeah. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. If people can say something with room for all of it. You know, they can know. say like, oh, I'm so excited for you. And this is such a miracle. And so you know, wonderful that this is happening. And I'm sure that there are parts of it that are really hard too. How are you feeling or how are you doing? And being curious and open to that part. And then if the person shares something that's hard, I think not saying something like, oh, but it'll all be worth it. Or, oh, you know, offering these these sort of platitudes, but being able to make space for hearing the hard parts of it too, mm-hmm. I think it's really lovely. So true. And maybe it's something like, I don't know, you're just so connected to something when you're pregnant and even postpartum that I think that's what people are actually speaking to. I have noticed like a lot of mamas out there, you know, will comment to me like, yeah, you look great, mama. And, you know, things like that, because they just want to like just give some words of encouragement and like, yeah, you go, keep on. And so, you know, it often is appearance-based, you know, something like that, just as a way to like say something like you're talking about, Danielle, just to, because they want to say something and they don't know exactly what to say. And that's their way of giving some encouragement. I think if we lived in a different culture where we didn't have this this idea that women are supposed to have a body project all the time and where there's less of a focus on your body being looking a certain way from the time you're, you know, being pretty from the time you're little until the time you die. I think it would actually feel like more, it would feel like more spacious to receive a compliment like that. It's only loaded I think because of all of these other pressures that are put on us from how our society is set up. Right. That's a great point. And also, wait, I don't know if you've noticed this in the shift from traditional OBGYN care to midwifery, but like my midwife doesn't even weigh me. I don't think like we don't have convert. She did just tell me I was, my belly was like three weeks ahead, but you know, she measured that. That's fine. That's not like about my physicality. And that was such a relief too. Like in my first pregnancy, I started with an OBGYN and was like, you should only gain 25 pounds. And it's like, I gained 25 pounds. in like, I think my first like 10 weeks of pregnancy, like, and the idea that there's one size fits all for every woman out there is so crazy. And that was a big relief in switching to midwifery care is like, it's not part of the conversation. Like eat well, nourish, rest. How are you and your husband doing? Are you sleeping well? It was so much more emotional, spiritual, you know, questions than like, how much do you weigh? 
with what are you weighing in today? Danielle, I'm so happy to hear you say that. I really, really hope there's a shift in that direction everywhere. I, I think for, for people not to be weighed during pregnancy, I think that's something. And if there's one tool I could even offer is that if your doctor wants to weigh you, your nurse wants to weigh you, your midwife wants to weigh you, because some do, or they want you to weigh yourself and report it to them, that you are allowed to say no. No, you are you are able to say, I'm sorry, that, you know, isn't, you don't even have to say, I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, you can just say, actually, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I'm choosing to do for my care. You don't have to explain yourself. And then you could also ask them, you know, what, you, what is it that you want this information for? How is it going to guide my care? And are there other ways for me to get this information? And that's especially important for women who are in larger bodies that are going to receive a lot of shaming and fear-mongering and pathologizing mm. um, when they are weighed at a doctor's office and who, by the way, might even avoid going to their care appointments because they don't want to receive the lectures about mm. their That's so traumatizing. That weight stigma is responsible for a lot of the things that we might attribute to people people's weight is actually because they're avoiding being at the doctor because they don't want to experience the shaming or they go, they experience the shaming and the shaming um, around weight gain or weight is so affects everything, your blood pressure, your, your heart rate, your mind, body, spirit, everything is affected by that stigma. And your postpartum journey. Cause then you're like, Oh, I have to lose all this. Yes, absolutely. And what a shame when that postpartum period, the thought that we'd be thinking about less nourishment at a time when we're the most depleted, that should just be the time that we are thinking about how much energy can I give myself to sustain myself and maybe my child during this time if I'm breastfeeding, you know, that that is the time that we want to focus on abundance. And instead, we're so focused on this shrinking piece or told that we should be focused on the shrinking piece. But I do think it's a good question of like, why do you want this information? What information does it tell you that, and how will that inform my care? Because I do think in certain situations, it's good to have that information. You know, I had actually lost weight between my first appointment and my second appointment. And so having that information, I wouldn't have noticed really, but having that information was important for me where I'm like, okay, I need to make sure that I'm like really stepping it up and, you know, putting on the weight I need to. Yeah. And, you know, now I've, I've way more than made up for it. But, <laughs> Good for you. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, my midwives, they ask me to weigh myself, but I often forget to, I'll like go to the restroom and they have you pee in this little cup and dip a, like a pH strip stick thing Mm -hmm. in it. And then by the time I'm done with that, I've already forgotten what else I need to do and just (laughs) leave. But, you know, and I, I do like have that number of the 30 or however many it is that you're supposed to like 30 or 35 pounds is like the ideal amount of weight that you're supposed to gain. And I am, I, you know, I pass that quite a, quite a while ago. And so, you know, I wonder like that, that was not even a reasonable number for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can, you know, think to myself, like, I am fine. I am healthy. I am in a good place. The baby is healthy and a great size. And I feel like my body will do what it needs to do even after I give birth. Like I'm not, you know, feeling this stress and anxiety around it. But I could see how for a lot of people that could be extremely stressful to be like, yeah, of like, whoa, you know, do I need to be now on a diet in third trimester or something like that? Or like, am I ever going to be able to get back to a good weight or, you know, it can just, yeah, it can be very triggering. And the beginning, right? The beginning of not trusting ourselves as, you know, I need this external thing to tell me 
whether I'm doing it right, whether I'm okay, whether I'm quote unquote healthy, which is a word I could talk about for a long time related to this, but you know, to, to have this external thing and that just carries forward. Am I doing, am I harming my child? Am I doing this right? Am I being a good enough mom? Yeah. And there's so much distrust. Like we don't ever cultivate that trust in our bodies. That was really that was really, I guess, if I had to put it into words, like what my transformation was from, you know, who I was pre-Sakara to, to, you know, post-Sakara and my food journey was, I went from distrusting my body, distrusting my instincts, distrusting my cravings to cultivating what we call body intelligence. And really with body intelligence came trust, trust that my body would, do what it needed to do, that it would ask for what it needed. And that trust is not, I wish that were something that I had been taught at a much younger age. Yeah. Yeah. I wish you had too. (laughs) Thanks, Susanna. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, I feel like this is such a beautiful place to ask you about light work and what light work you're going to give us and all of our listeners today. Yeah. Okay. So my thought is that one of the most important ideas in supporting new parents is the idea of being good enough. This is a a concept that comes um, from the world of psychology and this idea of the quote unquote good enough mother, but we'll extend it to fathers too and parents of all all stripes. Um, And there's actually this idea that being, if you're trying to be perfect, you can't ever achieve that. And that's actually not necessarily good for your baby. Your baby needs you to mess up and for them to experience things not working and then to experience the repair and reconnection over and over again, that sometimes these disturbances in the relationship or in them getting their needs met actually are the thing that enable them to use you for soothing and to develop a sense of self and ability to cope in the world. And so my light work would be to practice the idea of being good enough. Um, So sometimes to do something and step back from trying to do it the way that you envisioned and just choose the version that's good enough. Do like a B version of whatever it is that you're doing today, whether it's at work, whether it's with your kids, whether it's with yourself, um, how you're getting dressed in any way to, to do good enough. And, you know, in yoga, I often will talk to people in Shavasana, you know, people have this idea they're supposed to have a clear mind. And I'll say, I want you to practice not trying to change your mind and just let the fact that you're lying here be good enough. That's, that's a tangible way to practice that. So I really like this one because I think that having things done the right way in my mind is something that, you know, that's, that's definitely a characteristic for me and it can hold me back from even doing things or putting things out into the world because I don't think they're ready or good enough. And so I love this as a practice of making the conscious effort to make it a B (laughs) and (laughs) and just just do it good enough and, and see how that goes. I like this. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. You're welcome. Well, thank you so much, Susanna, for being here today, for, for doing this work. It's so important and so specific I've never like heard of anyone that really intersects this place between how we relate to our bodies uh, and then motherhood and it's just so beautiful and so important so thank you thank you I just want to make sure that that I say that you know we're talking about all of all of these issues in terms of how they impact the individual but I think there's also a really important social justice piece to all of this and you know I said earlier that 20% of new moms experience mental health um, problems, but it's actually 40% for black moms. And that there's a pretty big crisis in our country around 
maternal health care and maternal mental health care that's given um, to moms of color and especially to black moms. Um, the mortality rates are much higher and that's all to do with the access to care and the way that the care is, is given um, when it is accessed. So I just, I want to put that out that I think there's so much we can do in ourselves, but I also think there's a lot we have to do collectively to make motherhood safe for everyone. Yeah. And there's so many, thank you for sharing that. And there are so many places where you can, you know, donate, even if it's just like $5, but I just donated to help support giving like doula services to black women who wouldn't normally have access to doula services. Like there's so many ways that we can help. And I totally agree with you. There's one layer about raising awareness in general about what all women deserve during birth, but then there's a whole nother layer of black women in particular. Yeah, there's a great organization, Black Mamas Matter. And I totally recommend that everybody donate there as well. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, Susanna. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for this was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed meeting you both and good luck. Many blessings along your journeys over the next weeks and months. Here's a Sakara story from Emily in Virginia. She says, I've been a member of Sakara for three weeks. I've been struggling on and off with an eating disorder my entire life. And I can honestly say after three weeks, I have a healthier relationship with food. All of the meals are delicious, nutritious, and satisfying. I'm a major snacker and I haven't felt the need to snack in between meals. Thank you, Emily, so much for sharing your Sakara story. As somebody who in the past had dealt with disordered eating, I'm so grateful that this food had an impact on your life as it did on mine. And thank you for reminding us all that food is about nourishment first and foremost and about making us feel like our best selves. So we wish you well on your journey. We hope that you in particular found this episode helpful. I know that I did. And for anyone out there dealing with disordered eating patterns, we hope you found not only this Sakara story, but entire episode helpful and know that you're not alone. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at Sakara Life. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Sakara Lights.